mental health services are connected with transit services, are connected with housing. It's such a layered situation where one cannot be talked about without the other. So you have situations where transit officers are going on buses and, you know, if you forget your bus pass, um, there's less of a chance of someone who literally came from work and has a work badge to get ticketed because you can literally just say, I left it at home, I forgot, you know, let me go off easy or like, I'll just get off at the next stop versus someone who is homeless, uh, has a mental health struggle, anyone who is literally going through withdrawal that is trying to get to a rehab center, like anyone who is coming on the bus that makes you feel like they're troubled. And our interviewees go very in-depth with how the system was set up to remove people that are like that from, you know, situations where we're trying to access service so the wider population doesn't have to deal with it or see it. In the last episode of the podcast, we talked about the media. And that was a very personal episode for me, mostly because of things that have happened in my past, but also because I think of the general frustration that a lot of people share when it comes to the media's inability to tell stories about anti-black racism, police brutality, anti-indigenous racism. We want to thank people who have decided to support us on Patreon. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to actually interview the people that you're about to listen to in a way that is reflective of the truth and that's fair for black people and indigenous people and for everyone. Shima, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? <laughs> I'm a community artist in Edmonton. I'm a spoken word poet or performance poet. So that's my main driving thing outside of work. My work is that I work for the Alberta Public Interest Research Group. We do social justice work with undergraduate students. I am an activist, so I'm in Black Lives Matter YEG, and I'm in, uh, involved in the Pekawewin camp uh, uh, in the Rossdale Flats right now as the media liaison. The camp really is a historical, in my opinion, I think it's a very historical thing that's happening right now when it comes to talking about affordable housing. The name Pekawewin. Uh, where did it originate from? Like, what what does it mean? And what does it mean to you? So, Pekewin is a Nehiawewin word. Nehiawewin is the Cree language. That's the word for the Cree language in the Cree language. So then, and then the word for Cree people is Nehiaw. Pekewin means coming home. And it can also be translated to mean inbound. So inbound is like returning home. Though the camp itself also means a lot about like, it just makes very, it makes very clear a lot of the challenges and struggles that people have, even outside of the issue of housing and mental health supports and everybody is having a close encounter with their vulnerability on the site pretty much on any given day. And so it is, uh, it's about like what it takes to make, to make people feel safe when one is homeless or houseless, I should say, in Edmonton. There's a lot of laws and bylaws that prevent that person from, like, say, sleeping in the same spot every day or from pitching a tent somewhere. You know, those tents get slashed up 
um, sometimes pepper sprayed, sometimes just things are stolen um, by Edmonton area law enforcement specifically. Um, and then there's also the fact that, you know, a lot of our public parks and that kind of thing, you're, you're not allowed to sleep there. You're allowed to be there, but you can't just be sleeping. It's against a bylaw. And so people will be moved along when they're trying to get rest a lot. And so depending on where people are, they're not always located in the inner city. They're not always able to stay with people who are in the inner city if they're relying on other people. And when they get housed, they might not be housed in the inner city. And so it's like, how do they get around? They have to use transit. Transit should be free. If they take the chance on, 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 getting, on not getting caught in the LRT, the, the attendant stress is not good for them. If they get caught, they're charged with trespassing because they haven't paid their fare. And this creates what I've been calling the bus to prison pipeline. Because the next time they get caught without a ticket, they can go to prison for trespassing violations. Instead of doing that, we could just give people the means to stay housed, find them housing, and then give them free transit so they can stay in their housing so that they don't have to be a huge weight on the, on the taxation system. Wow, I never thought of it that way, like a bus to prison. You're taking a bus um, to get to go see your family member, take care of someone. um, And next thing Mm -hmm. you know, you're getting arrested because you couldn't afford it. It's atrocious, exactly what you said. And I mean, Edmonton winters are notorious, you know, minus 40 others. Like, are they expecting people to just walk if if they can't afford this ticket? The highest demographic of ticketed individuals on ETS uh, Edmonton Transit System last year was the houseless community. Highest demographic of ticketed people. And so when we think about that as being in the enforcement of poverty, and then we think about what people have to do, let's say when they get out of prison for the two weeks they were in remand, to be able to say that their ticket is null, they get back into the t- city and then people have trouble with them, right? They end up in a neighborhood or they, they go come back, to, let's say they came back to Pecola Island Camp even, and somebody encounters them on the way to wherever they're going and they have trouble with them. Now, I think that this trouble is more reflective of the, the, the deep, deep deficiencies in our systems. If per se someone, and I'll give you like what I would define trouble as in this situation, but someone was going through a mental health crisis, how, how would people at the camp respond to this? Well, basically that happens on the site every day because there are some people who live at Peckland Camp who have very serious concomitant needs around, around addictions and mental health, uh, which is very, very common when people have any serious trouble with either one of those. Um, we offer as much compassion as we can. It's about empathy. It's about also setting healthy boundaries. It's about getting people their medications. It's about, these are the things that are done on the site every day. Every day, somebody, there's some kind of meltdown or somebody will be having a hard time in a specific kind of way that takes a lot of knowing them to understand. Like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's backstory, there's developed relationships, there's relational significance between organizers, volunteers, and people who reside on the camp. Yeah, I think it's really just about like understanding that people are people. People are people no matter what, like no matter how distraught or angry somebody might be, they're still a person. 
Um, and to treat them like that usually helps them to heal with immediacy, usually helps them to calm down immediately, usually has a really positive effect. And so it is just about like extending that, that care. It's just mind boggling to know that the calls that the police are getting are mental health related. Um, so they would be dealing with situations that, that you deal with every day type of thing. But in reality, we yeah. see uh, there was an article that came out talking about disturbing numbers, like in 11.9% from the last six months of 2020, um, any type of mental health call was met with use of force and an 11.9% increase use of force was delivered um, or control tactics, which we know are tasers or, you know, subduing the person physically. Um, uh-huh. And I, I want to know just from you, even outside of camp, the camp itself, but as a person, um, what would you recommend as a type of training or as a type of service that you like just as a citizen in Edmonton have noticed that is severely lacking when it comes to mental health? Um, what's something that's de-escalation. Like- yeah. De-escalation training is the one thing that is severely lacking in my opinion. Everything else is pretty much like your first aid, like mental health first aid and regular old first aid. And, um, you know, like, I don't know, maybe like naloxone training and then like, you know, just like a knack for it. If you have a knack for it, you can do those things and implement those things and you need to do them. But de-escalation training is a key feature, is a key aspect of the training package that is needed to do these things effectively without coercing people into complying to the, to the, to the, to the, the requirements of receiving that kind of service, right? And so I think like de-escalation as a, as a, as a core skill has to be emphasized, uh, for anybody who's going to be working with vulnerable people, that includes everybody in a uniform. That includes, which includes EMS, fire department, like all of these uniformed service people should be exemplary at, at delivering a de-escalated sort of like solution-based engagement with anybody. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case. Unfortunately, it might not be able to be the case given the culture of, of law enforcement and uh, the culture of first response. And so, Sheila, I want to know, like, tell the viewers, I guess, like how they can support the camp, um, what they can do to get awareness of what you guys are doing and how they can, you know, push city councillors to act. Yeah, so there is a page on the... Uh, City of Edmonton website that has all of the phone numbers, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever they've got for every single city councillor, including the mayor. Spam that. Just go ham and let them know what you think about what the, how they're dealing with Pecoran Camp, what they're putting out there in the media, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to jump here and mention that Camp Pekowin has actually been closed recently. So last week, November 8th, the camp was given a notice and most people were basically let out. Um, I'll play this clip from APTN reporter Chris Stewart to provide further context for what happened. Edmonton police are going through of what remains of the camp. Lots of tents and belongings are still here. 
Christoka Jenner is the director of affordable housing and homelessness for the city of Edmonton. She says that the city has enough room in the several shelters to house everyone who needs it. Raylene Carter is a longtime resident of the camp. She says she is afraid to go to a shelter with the COVID pandemic. I mean, if you're going to put a whole bunch of people anywhere from 10 to 300, what they do have at the Shaw Conference Center, and expect them to stay there. And if one person gets sick, it's like walking into a death trap. From what I'm thinking is, we were right. I was right to stay outside here. She says she will be staying at a friend's place soon, but will be sleeping outside until then, and doesn't understand why they were evicted. To me, it's just another form of sweeping it under the rug and saying that we did the best we could with what we had, but I think it's, it's a very unsophisticated fashion to handle people, especially when they're dealing with our lives. So now, the only people at Camp Pikawiwin are the police. It really does sound like we're paying for law enforcement to go ticket, surveil, um, an impoverished population that, like Shima says in her interview, like the most over-ticketed population <laughs> is homeless people in Edmonton. It's ridiculous that we're paying for a service that we know we're not going to get our money back from. Um, and it's, I think, in my opinion, it's directly done on purpose. I, what do you think, Omar? I definitely have a lot to say when it comes to transit in Edmonton. I think to begin with, Hanan, you mentioned this before. Um, transit in Edmonton ranks very low when it comes to uh, national transit systems. Our LRT system only has two lines. One, which was added recently, is a great addition, still has a lot of expansion to do. But for example, in the city of Calgary, everyone gets to ride for free downtown. So it's a really good example of how you don't necessarily have to have transit that's inaccessible like Edmonton. So the transit here also runs on a ticketing system that was mentioned in the interview is completely based on uh, honor system. You don't have anything preventing you from using transit. If you're using the LRT, for example, um, you can just walk into the train and essentially what the city does is like we we're talking about, they enforce all these bylaws. Bylaws like you can't put your feet up, bylaws like obviously if you enter without paying, that's a bylaw violation. So it's just a cycle of poverty. It's you don't have money, so you're punished for not having money, and then you don't have even, you have even less money after that. And then so how are we supposed to help people that are already, you know, disenfranchised because of racism how are we supposed to help them actually get to a better place if everything in the system, all the policies that are in place, are just kind of putting them back into the same cycle? I think a lot of people in the city definitely struggle with making ends meet. COVID has made things even worse. Now we're seeing camps like this appear and people don't have many options. So I think it's obviously time for policy to change. Hanan, what do you think about policies maybe that the city should change and how you know these things should be approached 
I feel like their work is pretty much done for them. I think Shima mentions some very realistic solutions that, you know, is really out there through research that volunteers have done. I mean, think about it. How much money has gone into reports that the provincial government has put out um, getting experts from, you know, New York, from New Zealand to talk about oil prices or, you know, uh, plunges in housing costs? Like, it's just unbelievable that you have this wealth of research out there that people have given up their time to do you're neglecting to address it and then furthermore you choose to just pretend it's not there and claim you know this isn't a service we should fund because we think or we don't really know if people will access it i mean 400 people going through this tiny park in edmonton 400 people think about it omar that's 400 too many people trying to find a service during a pandemic and you know hearing about those two shelters that were closed down absolutely ridiculous i think i think the city really needs to start shaping up um minus 40 weather is going to be coming soon during a pandemic during the worst economic crisis like our province is going to be hit the hardest in the country we we know this and i don't know i just think if they don't act now will they ever um so i think it really is up to groups and people like shima supporting the work that they're doing she talks about beaver hills house she talks about pequin they're feeding people they're giving people mental health services um the city of toronto there was a landmark decision where the homelessness population actually won because a shelter was closed like it's actually designated that you know housing is a right that people deserve the un has acknowledged that um so it's just preposterous that we are 20 years into a, a millennium and the city of edmonton is struggling to understand that housing is a right um and not this privilege that we've pff, wow that we've elevated it to be it's very disappointing I just want to talk a little bit about how some of these issues function in a cycle and how a lot of these things could be solved, but a choice is made by leaders and elected officials to uh, push certain opinions to the side in favor of others. And there are clear examples of how policies in the system and the process just always fails people. So one really good example that I want to start with is a story that Bashir shared with me uh, during the summer. So I remember when Bashir was uh, called a racial slur when he was in a you know traffic situation, and when that incident happened, um, he got a meeting with the mayor Don Iverson, the mayor of Edmonton, and in that meeting Don Iverson told him or told Bashir that he couldn't just walk into the meeting and make demands. And when, you know, we're talking about these demands in this meeting, we're talking about things like seriously addressing racism in Edmonton. We're talking about things like taking real action that includes funding um, or funding cuts when necessary um, to address racism or address things that are related to racism like police brutality. Um, so to be told that you can't make demands um, and to also have a system where, like in this interview, Mark will explain that you get criminalized for not having money, which then make, means that you owe the government money, which then means if you can't have, you know, any money to actually pay them, you are further criminalized. So people kind of get brought down this rabbit hole and there aren't a lot of pathways in the system when it comes to actually funding solutions that aren't 
more punitive action like ticketing or um, nothing really. Just the streets. You're just kind of on your own. No social housing, very, you know, few concrete social supports. So when people struggle to afford transit, when people struggle to afford mental health and addiction services, um, we live in a city that is hard to live in if those things aren't accessible. So um, with, with, yeah, it's, it's hard to address these issues. It's hard to make it known to the public that we need to start solving these things for people. If all of it is always cloaked around uh, confusion or if the blame is always placed on the individuals who are suffering through these broken policies and bad systems and quite frankly elected politicians who will probably smugly tell you that you have no place to make demands or you know to ask for things when you want them. So with that being said, um, here is our interview with Mark. So I'm a uh, social justice advocate, and I've been working in the Edmonton community for about 30 years. So I've been helping people with in the criminal justice system, the child welfare system, the healthcare system, the education system. I think that the people that I work with, uh, when you're struggling with mental health, and then you're entrenched in poverty and have little or no support, and then you have all this trauma in your life, that metastasizes itself into something that's much more uh, severe. And so uh, a lot of the mental health work that I do is in the area of crisis intervention. Like today, I took somebody to the hospital that was suicidal. Uh, that's a, you know, I've done that hundreds of times. In, in, and that just sorts of, um, you know, and, and again, going upstream with this person, you, it's just, yeah, it, it was it was they they had a a mental health issue, um, and it wasn't addressed. And then when they were faced with um, environmental issues such as poverty, no food, no access to basic needs, uh, that's just a that's just that's just, that's just adding adding fertilizer to it. it. Just explodes and grows, and then the mental health become becomes very uh, your mental health becomes very unstable and, and uh, you know, lacking, you know, you're lacking, if you're lacking in no, you're lacking supports, then, then you're, you're at risk of, you know, that becoming like this girl's case, coming, wanting to kill or hurt yourself. And so I want to ask, like, what made you interested in this line of work? Because I know that you, you did train to be a lawyer, right? So no, no, I never trained to be no? a lawyer. I, I, I was actually trained to be a bartender. <laughs> okay, my dad, a, my, my dad had a uh, my dad had a uh, a restaurant, and I was working there. And I was really, it was in a, it was downtown, so I was experienced. I was, ex, you know, I was exposed to a lot of people that I had never been exposed to. And um, I realized that what I really wanted to do was help all these people. So we'd get a lot of people with addictions issues in the bar <laughs> and I would try to, I would encourage them to go away. And, and so I wasn't very helpful for my dad's business, but I certainly found my calling. And then, you know, I, I went to school and, and wanted to get a job within the correctional field. And, and that's, I ended up working at the courthouse for 30, 25 years 
uh, with the Youth Criminal Defense Office, and now I'm with the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights. We have an issue all across this country is that on paper, we have a lot of protection. We have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Every province has legislation in the area of human rights. But for somebody that was evicted because of their color of their skin from a housing project with no money, you know, accessing a lawyer to uphold their rights isn't practical and it's not going to happen. Filing a complaint with the Human Rights Commission, well, any of these commissions across the country is going to take nine months to two years to resolve itself. So for that person, there is no rights. There is no human rights. It's, it's on paper, but to their perspective, it's meaningless. So our organization is, is able to pivot and work very quickly and very effectively in upholding those human rights. So if that landlord's, we'd phone them and go, hey, what the hell are you doing? We would, we would involve maybe, uh, you know, social media. We would involve the press. We would involve... Uh, you know, maybe landlord and tenants advisory board, we involve the political aspect of it. So that's where we're effective is that we're dealing with human rights on the streets and in our communities. And we're very quick and very fast and very effective. And I mean, you mentioned how your organization is key to filling this gap that you've identified, you know, from when you were working at a bar, right? So I want to ask you, like, what are what are the services that you see are severely lacking in the city when regards to well, mental health? Housing, and I'm sure you're hearing that a lot. Housing is a big issue. And ongoing support, if, you know, there's all these subtleties that really affect our vulnerable population. And one of them is it will, and what's lacking is the, the is again on paper we have lots of support, we have more agencies than you can shake a stick at, but you start looking at what these agencies can really do, and you understand that their funding comes from the government, so they can't be critical of government because you can't you can't bite the hand that feeds you, um, and many of these resources are stuck in one silo. So you'll have an agency that works with people involved in the criminal justice system, but the people involved that are helping you can't pivot and move outside of that system to also help you in the child welfare system or the education system or the, or the welfare system. And so they're, they're very limited. So we, we're lacking real supports that are able to pivot and move and fight effectively within each system. So we're, you know, so not only are we lacking the traditional things, we're also lacking those dynamic resources such as uh, real, real agency support and, 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 and people within the systems that are able to follow these people through their journey. And the turnover rate is so high. So you look at a group home or you look at, uh, let's say, a youth worker. You have a youth worker with a young person that has mental health issues. Well, that youth worker is getting $16 an hour, working, asked to work 45, but really 60 hours a week, has no benefits because it's for a nonprofit agency. 
and and what happens is that they move on they quit so this young person is experiencing abandonment over and over and over again because there's so so much movement within the system that young person doesn't have any continuum of care that the people that that young person has an emotional connection with that youth worker that group home staff that child welfare worker they burn out they move on and so you have these issues of abandonment and it goes on it, it moves on so people that are helping elderly you know where's george who was your caregiver for the last six months who you really liked oh he quit and he moved on and then three months later well where's jill he's your care worker she was supposed to be helped oh she quit or she got laid off because of budget cut she's moved on so that's what's really lacking is is a continuum of support and, and a dynamic the dynamic as, aspect of people we don't have enough youth workers we don't have enough support workers and those that we do have we're underpaying them they're underfunded and quite frankly we're treating them like shit. Uh, especially this government this government's cutting back on services and making work a lot more difficult and a lot less meaningful with our vulnerable population. Uh, people that, uh, you know, agencies are becoming risk averse too. That's a big issue. And a good example is legal aid. I, I worked 25 years with legal aid and they became very uncomfortable with my advocacy and my support and social justice on a whole. So eventually, um, you know, they became very risk averse and sort of like a cold bowl of pablum, uh, you know, they did no harm, but there was nothing to it. And they became inert, so they let me go. Um, so that's another problem, is that you've got all these agencies that are risk averse. And so you, you rightfully so label quite a few tangible resources and solutions. And, you know, Shima, uh, the media liaison for the Camp Hickland, like she labeled the exact same things that you're saying right now. But I want to ask you, Mark, because on this podcast, we try to talk a bit about policing and how that is directly involved oh, yeah. in, you know, the mental health situation that's going on. So like a quick yeah. situation, like a quick example, if I call 911 right now, not only am I part of other calls that are mental health related, um, but the police officer that's coming, you know, there's a chance because of the increase of 11.9% of use of force that was, you know, in their report for the first six months, uh, that's how they respond to mental health calls. So my yeah. question for you, Mark, is like, what are your thoughts when you hear numbers, astounding numbers like that? And you might even see them in your line of work. Oh yeah, if you Google my name, Mark Charrington, the Edmonton City Police, you'll see a lot of conflict. <laughs> so- um, That's how we found yeah. you, Mark. We were like, oh, yeah. who with the name of Edmonton City Police? Like, you know, who, who yeah. should we find that? Well, you know, I remain optimistic with the police because I demand that they are our police force. They are not the chief's police force. They're not their own police force. They're not there to judge and, and, and jury. They're there to assist their community, which is our community. We're their employer. And as far as I'm concerned, we're their boss. And I'm not happy with the, with my employees uh, right now, that being the Police service, and I can, I can I can be quite frank. But again, this is my perspective, and this is the perspective of the thousands of people that I've tried to help. What we see and what I see 
is the police force of white males on white horses. <laughs> that's, that's the perception, that they're in to ride in and save the world. That's their perception. And it's not like that. I want a police force. I don't want an army in our city. And we've militarized our police to the point that I can't distinguish the difference between the police and our armed forces. And there's no excuses for that. I see needs for equipment. Like I see the, the important needs of a helicopter. It, it really does reduce the risk of dangers like high-speed chases and that. So I'm not against technology or equipment. But when you start militarizing the police and changing uniforms from a light gray community police uniform that they had up until the early 90s to these dark black blood red insignias um, you know these jack boots these black leather gloves um, you know these these ramming bars on their cars they become very intimidating and they become very militaristic so there's the issue of milit militarization of our police force we need to pull back on that and put the brakes on that immediately we need to hire a diverse police force that's reflective of our community um you know and there's no excuse why this police force cannot work aggressively to achieve that goal we have a police force as far as i'm concerned that's 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 being trained the wrong direction and in the wrong manner that you know at least from my experience working with people that i try to help their interactions with the police has always been that the police are aggressive and 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 violent, and um, you know nine out of ten interactions that that people that I work with with the police, there's always some sort of violence associated. With um, you know, and I think that's a way that they need to start tracking statistics. Is they need to track episodes of violence. It's a push into the hood of a police car. It's the twisting of an arm to get a handcuff on. It's the elbow into the back of the head. You know, each of those actions are violent. And each of those actions need to be, I think, documented. And we need to see a de-escalation of violence. And how do we do that? We need to put more money away from the arming of police into the training of police and into the community aspect. I question why our police budgets have raised, have, have increased so dramatically compared to other things like other first responders, like our fire department, our ambulance, our, I mean, our EMTs, even healthcare, I don't think is at the rate of increase as, as police budget. I'm not saying we need to defund the police, but we need to audit the police and we need to divert the, some of that funding away from equipment and the militarization of policing into the community aspect. And, and the final stage of policing, I think, is accountability and transparency. And I think, by and large, with ACERT, uh, I think, by and large, with our professional standards branch and the uh, Law Enforcement Review Board, we have okay oversight. But again, from the street level, that that's those are paper resources and it doesn't provide the transparency that somebody at four in the morning would like and so how do you solve that well i know how you solve that body cameras body cameras and cameras in 
police cars. Uh, I think that's that is is, a, is an vital aspect of equipment as I can see as being a helicopter or even a sidearm. I think that the, the body cameras need to be standard issue. Um, and I also believe that you know as technology develops and grows, um, you know, um, I can see we need to understand the area of privacy and police privacy. I'm worried about actually no one's really talked about i'm worried about what's called you know police drones i think in the next 15 years you're going to see drones you know cameraized drones floating around uh, not only crime scenes which are good i mean but also drifting into our backyards hovering over our houses so i, th I think that oversight is and transparency is going to be really critical in the next 20 years of policing and i think that um, we need to really establish a way that we're going to deal with that uh, in a manner that's going to uh, reflect uh, that's acceptable to commu our community. So I also want to ask you, because I think you, you pretty much know that uh, on this podcast, we talk about abolishing the police, like the concept of policing, not even being uh, an option at this point and more of yeah. community involved resources. And, you know, we talk a bit about how, um, a few of us even, like me and Omar, like growing up, 911 wasn't an option for us. Maybe some of the people that you've even helped out, no, like 911 wasn't an option. They called exactly. people like you. They called people like Mark to show up and to help them navigate things. And for me, that was my auntie or uncle across the street. So I want to get your thoughts on that type of community-involved service rather than, you know, body cams or all these other sort of things. And to just fund people like you um, that are actually doing work, in my opinion, that's more meaningful. And I mean, do you have any numbers of harm, uh, use of force that you've used, Mark, that we're not aware of? No, no. Um, you know, the, the issue of calling 911, I, I remember once I got a call from a girl um, who was scared to call the police. She had a warrant for her arrest, and also her interactions with the police have never been positive. Uh, so she called me in a crisis, and um, when I pulled up, you know, she, she was holding the bulbs of her intestines in the palm of her hand, keeping her guts from rolling out onto the pavement. She'd been stabbed, and she wouldn't call 911. Um, and, and I took her to the hospital. Um, and that scenario shouldn't happen. And you know, I think, yeah, I think that we, you know, as the crime rate continues to decline, and I think we get a more active community, uh, your examples that you're showing, uh, Black Lives Matters, the Indigenous community is becoming much more vocal about policing and much more active. So we're having all these other uh, organizations. Uh, community grassroots organizations rising up and, and becoming the eyes and ears of the community. And that's what really policing is doing is, is, and so I think there's going to be a time policing, I won't say abolished, but I think policing would look dramatically different. And, you know, uh, we can do things that, that I think are really like, you know, I, I remember as a kid, we used to have what was called block parents. So um, it was it was for lost kids. And my mom was a blogger. 
But what it was, was it was somebody that was, you could go to the neighbor, you could go to a specific person in your neighborhood, in your community, to deal with, uh, with situations that involve fear, violence, um, you know, d- disruption, disorder, without going to the police. And uh, I think we can work towards that. Uh, we need to we need to do the, the preliminary steps to get to that point, and I think we need to look at um, what role firearms play in our community and our country. Um, because yeah, uh, we need to look at uh, supports in the area of mental health uh, and poverty. If we're addressing those issues, then I think the role of police. The need for police would diminish dramatically, and the types of involvement police uh, would be would be a lot less intrusive and look completely different than what we see. And we might not be calling them police; we might be calling them block parents. We can all kind of see how Mark is able to understand the complexities that surround homelessness, mental health, addictions, but then also kind of see where the police is coming from. He provides this perspective we don't show a lot on this podcast. And he explains really himself why. Um, Despite saying we need body cameras and we need, you know, uh, better accountability measures and diversity in the police force, he actually goes into later on why indigenous and black folk don't call the police. I don't know about you, but like him explaining that stabbing situation and why he's the one showing up to a young woman's holding her guts from spilling out um, call rather than an ambulance is purely based on fear. Um, and I don't think people will ever understand the fear of calling us for a service when you need it the most and knowing that that service is going to harm you. Um, And I think he proposes his own alternatives. Like, we literally see Mark go from, you know, police, body cameras, diversity in the police force, and then start mentioning block parents on every block and envisioning a world without policing. I think that's, that's the perspective we're trying to show more on this podcast. Rather than, you know, media focusing on why we need policing and why crime is something we should be so afraid of, We need to start looking at what human rights is. What is our charter supposed to protect us from? What freedoms do we deserve? And why those freedoms won't be upheld by a system that is inherently racist, that we try to prove here, um, and a system that's just made to control and put people away. Um, I use this example a lot that before prisons were created, it was the Indian pass system. when the Indian pass system was gone, um, prisons, the money came in. The numbers went up. And now we have 70% people sitting in the Edmonton Remand Center without being sentenced or charged. I don't know about you, but that's not what the charter that I believe in was created for. And that's definitely not the freedom that we should strive for as Canadians. I think as Edmontonians, we should try to not only be aware of what's going on by listening to black and indigenous folk, but by also holding these systems accountable. Um, Accountability shouldn't just be 
this prospect that you believe the other person is going to give you, it's a two-way street. And I hope, I hope this episode, you're able to sit and hear what we're trying to say. Um, so if you have any tips or feedback or any topics that we should explore more, uh, please let us know how we can try to continue this discussion of multiple intersections of one issue. So it's not just you know a mental health episode, but more of like a services that the city should try to provide for black and indigenous folk and not just uh, the white people that live in this city.